Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. with us at college worship here at First College, we began a series a couple of weeks ago that we call Gospels. You can see it on the screen, where we're exploring how the gospel, and what we mean by that is this good news that Jesus Christ has come, he's lived a perfect life, he died on the cross to bear our sins, to pay for our sins in the eyes of a holy and righteous God, and was resurrected on the third day, conquering the effects of sin, which is spiritual and physical death. So we, call, we want to talk about the gospel as it is explored and unpacked and depicted in the four gospels of the New Testament, which would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then also in Paul's letter to the Romans. We walked through how the surprising kingdom of God is displayed in the gospel of Matthew. That was week one. And last week, we got to hear from our associate college minister, Kate, as she explored for us in the gospel of Mark the surprising call of Jesus, that he calls us to die to self and follow after him. That he is worth our all in the present, not just in the future, but in the present as well as for all of eternity, he is worth it all. And tonight I want us to continue forward in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the surprising invitation of Jesus. We will, of course, dial in on a specific passage here in a moment, but I want you to see how you can see Jesus' surprising invitation to very unlikely people to be involved in his community, his family of faith, or his kingdom. And that's in the context of Luke. In Luke 1, there is an account of John the Baptist's birth being foretold to his mother Elizabeth and then his priest father, Zechariah. Zechariah is visited by an angel in the temple, and the angel tells him that you, your wife, who has been long barren, will have a son, and he will make it prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And Zechariah kind of chuckles in disbelief, struck mute until his son is born. But you also have this in contrast to lowly teenage Mary, who is later visited by the same angel and told that she will bear the very Messiah, the Savior of all creation, and her questions of the angel lie in wonder, not in disbelief. How can this be? And she accepts her position willingly in worship. So you see this juxtaposition of the one who should know better rejects the truth of God, and the one who does not have spiritual training saying, so be it. And then in Luke 2, you have the outcast shepherds being the ones who are the first heralds of good news according to the choir of angels. They are told to go forth and find the Messiah, and then they share the gospel. And then you have the call of Jesus' first disciples in Luke chapter 5. These are commoners. These are men who failed out of rabbinical school. They were meant to be in trade school. They were not meant to be following after the rabbi of rabbis. But he calls them with a surprising invitation, and they respond in the affirmative. And then chapter 14, Jesus shares a parable about a banquet where those who were invited, those who were expected to be at a banquet, deny the invitation. Oh, I just got married. I need to, you know, be there with my wife. Oh, I've got this other thing to do. Oh, I have a business engagement I need to be at. And they all reject the invitation. So what does he do? He goes out and tells his servants, go and find anyone on the street and invite them in, including the cripple, the lame, the lepers, you name it. So much so that his room would be filled in the case that one of those would respond later that were invited originally, they would have no room. They were no longer invited. There are many other examples in Luke of this motif of Jesus inviting surprising people into 
his family into this kingdom of God. But for this evening, I want us to focus in on chapter 15. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Luke 15 on your devices or in your physical copy of God's Word. Uh, If you don't have a physical copy of God's Word, please find me afterwards. We have one for you. We would love to give you one. Not that the digital one's not good, but there's something about those pages. Just my personal preference, showing my age probably. But if we can, I would like to frame the rest of our time together tonight by examining two verses really quickly before we jump into our primary passage. Look with me at Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. How does Luke begin here? Well, this is really interesting because right at the ending of chapter 14, which we, these chapter demarcations were not in the original text. So we would read this in a flow. Right after the words of Jesus talking about salt losing its taste, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then continues in, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to what? Hear him. We can talk, it's fine. It's a safe space. So the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And to whom are these sinners and tax collectors immediately compared to? Well, in verse 2, we see the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling. And what are they grumbling about? This man receives sinners and eats with them. At the outset of our chapter for tonight, Luke shares an incredible juxtaposition between those desperate to hear the teaching of Jesus and those who think they know better than Jesus. Those who expected someone they thought would be better than Jesus. And what does Luke share about their grumblings? This man receives sinners and eats with them. I want to note two things briefly here. To begin with, in the original language, this phrase that we translate, this man receives, is translated in numerous other places in the Greek New Testament as he eagerly awaits or he expects or he actually goes out and looks for. So the idea here is that Jesus is not being passive. He's not saying, come to me. Rather, he's saying, you, dine with me. He receives them. He expects them. He longs for them. And he is scoffed at by the religious rulers of the day. He's not merely receiving those who are looked down upon as morally inferior or socially acceptable, but he's seeking, unacceptable, excuse me, but he's seeking them out. Not only that, he invites them to his table. Dining with someone in this period was an act of intentional hospitality. That denoted one's desire to truly know and connect with those at his or her table. It was an invitation into the family for the moment. Putting this all together, we begin our chapter tonight with Jesus surprising the religious rulers by inviting these morally reprehensible people to be known by him as friends. Amen. To spend time with him. To be recognized as people worth his time. And those who have better understanding of the scriptures and religious awareness, they're blinded by their moral prejudice. And they miss their chance to sit with the very Messiah, to know him, and to be known by him. And so for the remainder of our time, I want us to explore how Jesus expounds upon that succinct narrative of an event through what I expect to be a pretty familiar parable. And if you remember, a parable is a story that has a spiritual meaning that Jesus often used as a teaching method. So what we're about to cover explores the hearts of the undeserving, the hearts of the self-righteous, and the heart of God for each of us. So if we could, let's turn our attention now to an incredible portion of the Bible. In Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, 
Hear now the word of the Lord according to Luke. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, his shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. If you are willing and able when I say this is the word of the Lord, please respond. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to explore this text together through your spirit and with one another. So Jesus, we ask that you come, that you would make a way for us in this text. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. All right, the parable we just read is not just a familiar story, but an incredible one. Uh, and it helps us better understand the way of Jesus and the way of salvation. So let's first look at, as I mentioned earlier, the heart of the undeserving. And to do so, I want us to understand this lost or this prodigal son had a heart of rebellion. So if you look with me again at verses 11 through 13. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me a share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. I want to just note a couple of things that are important here. First, the way this younger son went about asking his father for his inheritance was a social faux pas, if you will, a no-no, something that you just never did. You would not dare treat your father, the provider of your family's means, in this manner. Not only was it disrespectful, but it was actually dishonorable from a spiritual standpoint. It was immoral according to the Torah or the covenantal law of God with his chosen people of Israel. <laughs> this younger son was effectively saying to his father that he was not worth his relational effort any longer. That his family was none of his concern, that the propagation of his family's well-being 
could just be left behind and it wouldn't bother him at all. The younger son was self-centered. He was greedy and basically wished to his father's face that he were dead. Secondly, the son gathered all he had and traveled to a far-off land. The implication of this phrasing is that the son was actually erasing his roots. He was pulling up anchor, if you will. He never wanted to. He never cared to return. It was, I'm looking ahead. This is where I'm going. I'm not looking back. There's no concern for me back here. And in that moment, again, he was spitting in the face of his father and his family. And now remember in these days, when someone left your physical presence, it was all but impossible to keep in touch. There was no FaceTime. There was no social media. There definitely wasn't even a post office. You guys know what those are, right? What? What is mail? I don't know. But what the son did was seek to disappear from his family tree. Talk about offensive. He was rebelling completely against his own family. Not only that, but he was also rebelling against his religious standards. He went to a far off land. In other words, a land of Gentiles, those that did not believe in or have a relationship with the one true God. The younger son rebelled against his religious upbringing as much as he had his family. He wanted nothing to do with God. It didn't matter to him. But I want us to continue on his path of development and see his heart of recognition. So if we can, let's look again at verses 14 through 17. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Our younger son here finds himself in dire circumstances relatively quickly. It's that mentality of, I have money in my pocket, it's burning a hole there, you know? You guys ever been there? I have four children. Many of you are like, oh, he still too, looks too young to have four children. Thank you. Um, but two of them are boys, and two of them are boys, if you will. And they get money. Everett, actually, he's our five-year-old. He lost his first tooth last night. And the tooth fairy is very generous for the first tooth, and then it gets real meager for the rest of them. But last night, he got five bucks because his first tooth. And he's five. Um, so, yeah, cheddar. Um, but I could tell in this morning when he woke up, he was so excited. But I'm like, he's already thinking about what monster truck he's going to buy. You know what I mean? He's just like, ooh, this is just burning a hole in my pocket right now. This son asked for his inheritance, offended his family, and then went in reckless living. And in a moment, what seemed like a moment, had spent his entire inheritance. And then his circumstances changed. They changed quickly. A famine strikes, and no one was there to help. But what's really interesting is I bet when he was spending his money, there were those nearby who were really eager to help him spend it. But then when it ran dry, no one was there to be with him. He gained no favor in anyone's eyes in this foreign land. He was alone, he was hungry, and he turned toward the only thing he could to make it, and he hired himself off to a local pig farmer. This detail is notable <laughs> because in Levit Leviticus, pigs are described to God's people as unclean animals. Those which would defile someone and keep them from entering the tabernacle or temple for worship. So we have our younger son friend here who has abandoned his family and his faith, who is completely out of money, and now is delving deeper into what many would consider sinful living as he disregards God's commandments for his life. Because he thinks he has to. And what he is doing is what so many of us do, right? 
We become so used to our sin or even so ashamed of our sin that we don't immediately ask for help. Rather, we turn inward and we go deeper into that sin because it's the only thing familiar to us any longer. We're afraid to ask the person next to us to say, can you help me here? We're afraid to depend on another person in the family of God to say, you know what, I will exhibit forgiveness to you. Instead, we turn inward. We try to muster up in our own lives how we might get out of our mess, and instead we dig deeper into it. This is what he's doing. The sun hit rock bottom in this moment, but what happens? I love how the Bible states this in the ESV translation, but also in the Greek in verse 17. It says, he came to himself. He came to himself. He has an epiphany of his person. He realizes who he is. He remembers who he is and what and whom he has access to. He had mistaken his own identity. He had defined himself by this money that he could spend. And now he was defining himself by his shame and his depravity and honestly his destitution. But now he comes to a realization. He could return to his father. It is here that we can see a true parallel for our hearts even today, especially regarding faith. And this is based upon the biblical understanding that we are created by God and created in his image. Our identity lies not in our sinful dispositions or the things that we might be used to, the things that we might allow the world say define us. They are not those which identify us. Our identity lies not there, but in whom we are meant to be in relationship with. I want you to listen to how John Piper puts this. He says, when you are alienated from God, you are always alienated from yourself. You can't know yourself or relate properly to yourself if you are running from the one who made yourself for himself. These are the three main things about your identity as a human human being. You are made by God, like God, for God. Therefore, conversion is coming to yourself as well as coming to God. It is discovering where you came from and why you are and why you exist. This is interesting too, because you notice in the text, the younger son does not mention returning home. But as he comes to himself, what does he say? I will arise and go to my father. It is not about the geography, it is about the person. His identity is not rooted in a place, but his person, his father. The same is true for you and me. We are not identified by any characteristic of our earthly existence primarily. Please hear me when I say that. You and I are not identified by any characteristic of our earthly existence primarily. Not by the way you look, not by the way you act, not by your personality, not by your family tree, not by your shameful baggage. I am not Southern first and foremost. I am not the son of Rick and Susan Voorhees, first and foremost. I am not the husband of Casey, nor the father of Emmy, Everett, Knox, and Lily, first and foremost. First and foremost, I am a child of God, redeemed because he said it could be. And I'm a child of God. I'm his creation. And the truth is, you are too. So we see his heart of recognition. And now we get to glimpse his heart of repentance. Look with me again at verses 18 through 20. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. It's really interesting. There's a word picture here. There's a tradition that thinks that that phrase, I have sinned against heaven, means I have sinned so much it's reached to heaven. So he's actually talking about the amount in which he's seen himself sin, and he's asking for forgiveness for the amount as well as in front of the person whom he sinned against. And he continues, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
at the outset here, I want us to know that the term repentance is this visual word. Many of you have heard this before. It is a visual word that means to turn away from, to direct your attention away from something that is evil in your life, something that is t pulling you down. And it carries the con connotation for us of turning away from sin or that which separates us from God and instead seeking to walk with God. So in our parable, the son repents of his arrogance. He repents of his recklessness, his lewdness, and his religious ignorance. And he returns to his father. And what's so beautiful here is that the son is in such dire need, he doesn't care about his station in his father's eyes. In fact, he's already made up his mind, he's just going to ask to be a servant, right? But he knows his father's generous heart. He knows that he will be provided for better than he is in this foreign land. He remembers how his father treats those who work for him, those who are even indentured to him. And he sees that his father is good, that he is righteous. He is good to those who work for him, much better than the person he's working for currently. So the son returns to the father, but with no expectation of being his son. Rather, a desire to serve, all out of understanding how good and warm and loving his father is. His repentance is based upon that recognition. His need, but also the goodness of the Father. But also that he is this man's son, and that his worth is not found in what he offers the Father, but in who he is to the Father. I want that to sink in for us this evening. His worth is not found in what he offers to the Father, but in who he is to the Father. This undeserving son then sets out to return to his father. So let's pause here for just a moment. And I want to divert our attentions for a moment toward the end of this parable and examine the juxtaposition between the heart of the undeserving and now the heart of the self-righteous. So let's do so beginning with the heart of resentment. In verses 25 through 28, we read, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, probably in your minds, you're just hearing like... You know, like you're just walking up on a house party or something. But here, there's probably like a lute playing. There's an entertainer there, someone doing a jig. He hears it, though, and he's like, something's going on. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. I don't think we need to spend a ton of time here except to say that I believe each of us in this room can identify with the emotions of this guy, right? Have we ever been in a moment where we're jealous? This Again, safe space. Yes? Okay. I, me and Rhett are not the only ones, nor Carter. We may be <laughs> depraved, but all of us have had moments of jealousy. We've had those moments in our lives where we see those we believe to be undeserving receive praise, and we're like, what the crap? This is recorded. Sorry, guys. <laughs> they receive accolades that we think we should earn. Or even a loving welcome in our own hearts, they begin to grumble. Why do they get that? We become the Pharisees. We become the resentful older brother in this parable. Resentment and bitterness begin to arise in our hearts, and we think some injustice has been done to us. And we miss the beauty of what is happening, of what is happening for the sake of someone else. And his resentment leads to a heart of moral superiority and mistaken identity. So again, look with me at 28, verses 30. But he was angry and refused to go in. I just get the sense of him like pouting and stomping his foot. Anyone else? Uh, his father came out and entreated him. 
But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Because apparently that's a party in this time, going and slaughtering a goat and cooking it and hanging out with the boys. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now this reminds me of those moments when my wife and I are mad at each other about what something our child has done, right? And at that point, they become one of our children, but not both of our children. You know what I'm saying? Your son did this. I get that one a lot. <laughs> Your son just, well, last week, my son threw a pot, a play pot at my other son. It grazed my son's head, Whoa. hit the back television, and destroyed their playroom TV. Yeah. And at that moment, I got a text, and I was just waiting on it. Your son has destroyed the TV. Didn't happen. But in this moment, what does this brother do? But when this son of yours came, not my brother, whom I've missed, whom I've been worried about, who I care about beyond my own cares. No, this son of you, yours came, and he has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him? But you've never done anything like that for me. A heart of moral superiority leads us to make the worst assumptions about others, doesn't it? Here the older son jumps to conclusions about what his brother has been doing. There is no instance in the text that tells us that this son, though it was reckless living, that he was out whoring, that he was prostituting, that he was paying women or men or whatever for these favors. There's nothing in the text, but his brother jumps to that conclusion out of his jealousy and out of his moral superiority. Our moral superiority leads us to make the worst assumptions about others. And here the older son jumps to conclusions. And he seeks to justify his own attitude by describing all that he has done in obedience to the Father. The problem with his moral superiority in this moment, though, is not just thinking the worst of his brother, but how his life choices have actually shaped his identity in the wrong ways. In verse 29, we read, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your commands. What's really interesting is that the writing of this, the verb that they use for I have served you, is better translated, I have slaved for you. It speaks to forced obligation versus loving service. It speaks to I'm the son that has to deal with everything because that guy's off gallivanting. Not I'm here and ready to serve my father who gives me so much. It's not loving recognition of his place in his father's eyes. Though this son has stayed put, though he has been dutiful, he has not done so out of love. He has done so out of obligation. And those things do not jive. He has missed the point of his sonship just as, he, as the younger brother has. When he views sonship, he thinks of job. The other viewed sonship as something that was disposable. His moral superiority just speaks to his mistaken identity. He is self-righteous because it's the only way he can justify his own choices. He can justify his mistake in not recognizing that his father cared for him as a son and not merely some glorified manager of his property. So in this moment, Jesus is obviously speaking to the heart of the Pharisees that are over, overhearing. He's speaking to the scribes in this moment of this parable. He's heard their grumbling, and he wants them to know where they actually stand with him and with others. The heart of the self-righteous is just as sinful as the heart of the undeserving. In fact, all are undeserving. We just manifest our sinful behavior in different ways, don't we? But the good news in all of this 
The gospel and what we are looking at tonight does not lie in the hands of an undeserving son seeking to be made right with his father or in the resentful brother seeking to be seen as right in his father's eyes. No, the gospel actually rests in the heart of the father. Now, if you were taking odds on whether or not I would get emotional as I speak tonight, because apparently that's a thing that happens now, um, this would be the section where that is most likely. It's because we can see the character of his heart, the Father's heart, in two distinct ways, a heart of rejoicing and a heart of redemption. And I want to pause here for just a moment. I know that not everyone in this room has a good relationship with their earthly father, and that does, that's not lost on me. However, when we look to the example of God the Father, we look to the example of all righteousness, not just for earthly fathers, but for all people. So if we look to that example and understand that we have a poor example in our lives, we have to understand that there is one who supersedes those circumstances, supersedes personality traits, supersedes a heart that might be dark. Because we know, according to Ephesians, that God is our true Father, And even if your earthly father has not been in your life or a poor example or even emotionally distant from you or worse, our God is not that kind of father. Because we know that God is creator. And what the scripture says is that he's actually father to all. No matter their earthly family life, their background, etc. He is a good and gracious father. And he will see more clear, and we'll see this, I think, unpacked more clearly in a moment. So when I use that term, Father, I don't want it to be a hindrance for you. I want it to be an image that can maybe possibly redeem something in your mind. So let's look at the Father's heart of rejoicing. Look with me at verse 20. And he arose and came to his Father, talking about the Son. But while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Remember what what we began with earlier in chapter 15, 1 through 2. This is what that looks like. The expectant looking, the keeping an eye out, the invitation constantly saying, come to me. This is what that looks like. The father has obviously been waiting expectantly on his son to return every day, and we have proof of it. He would not be there. He would not see him coming down the path unless he was being diligent and saying, where is he? Can you imagine? The father sits at the window on the front porch at certain parts of the day. On the daily, hoping, praying that his wayward son, whom he should be furious with, utterly offended by, but he wants him to return. And one day he does. And what does the father do? Does he wait on the porch with his arms crossed for his long lost son to walk up with his tail between his legs to offer an apology? To offer some semblance of respect, to beg for his forgiveness before he can show him how deeply he cares for him, how much he has missed him, how much he has desired that he return to him? No. He turns on the jets and in my imagination nearly tackles his boy because his boy is home. His boy. His child. Not his newly minted employee who has come to offer his services like his son is hoping to beg to be, but his boy. And what is interesting to me, thinking about the culture of the day, is that this man would have been a man of means, of respect, of authority. And for him to act this way would have been unheard of. Now this is a parable, so this is probably an imaginary person that Jesus is just using, for example. But still, this man would have been, people would have been like, what in the world is he doing? He abandons all decorum. He does not care. His boy has returned and he is ecstatic. More than this, I want you to think about where the son has been. 
Think about the filth that he probably still has on his person because he left the land in famine. He's been hanging out with the pigs every day. He's been trying to eat their food. He has not showered. He has not bathed. He's not only physically unclean, he is spiritually unclean. But the father does not care because his love is greater than his filth. He has compassion upon his son. He races to him. He embraces him. He kisses him and also does not allow his boy to give his entire plea before he interrupts because he is also one with a heart of redemption. So look with me at verses 21 through 24. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Remember, he's already rehearsed this, right? I have sinned heaven against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's the next part supposed to be? Will you take me as a servant? But the father said to the servants, he doesn't finish his sentence. But the father said to his servants, after he's heard this apology, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they begin to celebrate. The father will have no talk of the son expressing that he is no longer the man's child. Someone needs to hear that tonight. The father will allow no talk of the son expressing that he is not worthy to be called the man's child any longer because of what he's done. He is and will always be in the father's heart. The father wastes no time as he interrupts his son's plea. He clothes him. He places shoes on his feet, signifying that he will never be a servant in his household. And he calls for a banquet to be prepared. The son is prepared to be humbled, but the father is prepared to be ultimately hospitable. He has longed for his son's return, and he has come. The son expresses his sins against his father, and the father doesn't even need to voice his forgiveness. He shows it. Look with me also really quickly at verses 31 through 32. And he, the father, said to him, and this is the older son, remember, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I wanted to share this with you because the father doesn't only run out to the returning son, he walks out and pursues the angry brother also. Have you ever thought about that? It says he goes out and entreats him. He would not let his older, embittered son wallow in self-pity, anger, or jealousy either. No, he wants both of his sons. He wants all of his children to know that they are loved and that they are desired. However, and Jesus is very clever here because he is educating the crowds of sinners and the Pharisees alike with this tale, he makes clear that the self-righteous son has had greater access to the Father all along. He's remained closer to the Father both physically and spiritually, yet he too has squandered a different kind of wealth. He squandered, squandered his wealth of proximity, his wealth of familiarity with the Father. Instead, he's wanted to please the Father and obey him so that he could be seen as valuable. But the Father still wants him. And he corrects the older son, not allowing him to distance himself from his sinner brother. He says, son, you're always with and all, you have always been with me and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This phrase, it was fitting, is better translated, and it is everywhere else in Scripture except here. It was necessary. Not it was fitting, not like it was ceremonially appropriate. No, it was necessary. In other words, in the eyes of God, when one of his children comes home to him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and the repentance of his sin, 
he necessarily celebrates. And what I mean by that is it is so ingrained in God's character that there is joy over those who return to him for salvation that there's always a celebration. It is in God's very character that he celebrates his love and grace's victory over the power of sin and death through the life, death, and resurrection of his only son, Jesus. He does not delineate between those who wander far from God or those who keep all the rules thinking that they earn God's favor. God wants each of us to know him. He wants each of us to be saved from our sin and eternal separation from him. His is a surprising invitation to those who most would discount or dismiss. He wants you. He loves you. God has a heart for redemption. That's why he made a way for us through Jesus. So the question becomes for us tonight, am I willing to have him celebrate my homecoming? If you're a believer, have you fallen into the trap of judging others or being self-righteous when it comes to interacting with those who do not know Jesus as their Savior? Or are you celebrating their homecoming? Are you walking in the revelry of your homecoming? Are you living in the joy of your salvation? If you're not a believer in Jesus but have lived with what most would consider to be a very moral life, are you in a place tonight to come to the Father and recognize your need for him? That your rule-keeping has not and cannot make you right in the eyes of God. If you're not a believer and have lived a life that you're ashamed of or think that you have done too much wrong to where you believe God could never forgive you, much less want to embrace you and know you completely, are you ready tonight to trust in the Father who loves you completely and desires to forgive you, who is ready to run off the porch and tackle you in his loving embrace? My prayer is that each of us tonight does not leave here unaffected or unchanged. I'm going to pray for us, but we're going to spend a couple of minutes in reflection before we close in song. And I want to thank you again for joining us tonight, because I know we started a little bit late because we get on board day. It's been a scramble for all of our leaders today, so I appreciate your patience in that. But as we close, I would, I would love for you to reflect well on the questions that are going to be on the screen. And if any of you would like to discuss what I've shared tonight, what we believe to be the truth of Scripture about salvation, I would be honored to have that conversation with you. And I know that Kate and Nathan or Nick or any number of our fellow students in the room, that they would be honored as well. So please come find us. Do not hesitate. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to be here. I pray, Lord, that we see that your invitation is for all.